It was pretty funny. One day I came home from school or somewhere, I can't remember where I was, and my old man was listening to uh, Ministry. So, <laughs> just a little story <laughs> outside of my toe. And he squashed a cockroach on the wall and yeah. like made a grave for it on the wall with a pen. Yeah. Yeah. He, wrote minist- he said that Ministry yeah, did it to him. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silver Chair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and today I'll be talking to my first ever podcast guest. That's right, I'm breaking the format to bring you my conversation with Richard S. He. Richard is an award-winning music and pop culture journalist, having written for outlets such as Billboard, Junkie, and Vice. He's also one half of the pop duo L. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have Richard on as the first guest Uh, is because he always has an interesting take on things. He is, for example, the world's foremost defender of Metallica's St. Anger album, and he has a wide-ranging interest in all kinds of music. He's also way more up-to-date with new music than I am, so I really wanted to hear his opinion on how Silverchair might have influenced new generations of musicians. So I really hope you listen and enjoy this one. Neon Ballroom will be the next episode, don't worry. But sit back and enjoy my conversation with Richard S. Hay. Richard, welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. Hello, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Uh, you're going to be our first guest, um, and I'm not sure how many guest episodes I'm going to do, so you might be in uh, very uh, rarefied air. <laughs> I feel like we have a lot to cover, potentially. Yeah. I, I really wanted Richard on the podcast because he's always got an interesting take. Uh, he has a very wide range of interests in music. Um, uh, you know, He's written about everything from Metallica's St. Anger album to Britney Spears, um, in fact, uh, what, what were you most recently working on? It was something about Ariana Grande. Um, I'm working on updating my uh, my list of every Lady Gaga song ranked for Vulture. So that should be um, – it'll probably be out by the time this podcast drops, actually, because, yeah, timed for a new album. So that's always fun to, like, revisit, like, old articles and, you know, yeah, give them a bit of a spruce up. Yeah. So in terms of Silverchair, I just wanted to sort of gauge where you're coming from. What's your history with Silverchair? Did you listen to them growing up? Sure. So I was born in 1990 and um, I guess they were, Silverchair was always in the air, like when I was growing up. Um, like I don't remember Frogstop coming out, but like those songs were around. I was aware of Neon Ballroom at the time, but I think I really got into them it was actually the year after Diorama came out and um, I feel like I had a bit more free time and um, I really, like, those singles really sunk in with me and they really made an impression when I bought the album and then I worked my 
worked my way backwards. So yeah, like that's basically it, I would say. Did you have a favorite album? Would it, would it have been Diorama? Um, definitely Diorama. Um, I think not just because it was the first, but um, that's the one that's stuck with me the most. Um, made like a big impression on the way I hear music and um, even like the way I want to write songs because it's such a like sonically and melodically adventurous piece of work that it kind of um, sometimes like other music feels like it pales in comparison a little bit, you know? Yeah. Still. It's like, I wish, Um, you know, every band could go that far in their career. Yeah, exactly. And, and I I believe it's actually one of their lowest selling um, even in Australia. That is ironic. Despite Mm. having made like a pretty big cultural impression, I think. Yeah. I think actually, I think it was, uh, it didn't do well on release. And then uh, because they couldn't tour as much because Daniel had, uh, he was yeah. having the reactive arthritis, but then it kind of surged once they did that Aria's uh, performance. Mm, and everyone yeah. was like, oh, okay, this is what Silverchair sounds like now. Okay, I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah. And like also the documentaries um, have really like canonized it in retrospect, I think. Yeah, especially that uh, SBS did a classic album series mm. and classic Australian albums, and the first one they did was Diorama, and that's actually really, really helpful uh, for this podcast. Um, but yeah, it's a great sort of making of, and and also pretty amazing that like they were able to you know call it a classic album just like what five years after it. Yeah, came out? it wasn't it wasn't long after. It's uh, but I think it's held up uh, with that mm. title. Yeah, absolutely. So like when you went back and listened to the other albums, did you feel like you could hear the progression in in big leaps or did it sort of seem obvious that that's what they were going to do? Well, I will be honest. Um, The first few albums I probably hadn't listened to in full in like a good 15 years or so. Like they made such a huge impression on me when I was a teenager. But um, for whatever reason, I just haven't revisited them. So... It was, um, in some ways I felt like I hadn't forgotten anything, but in others, it was quite a revelation. Like, um, just to hear that amount of evolution in such a compressed timeline, I feel like it makes it even more impressive, um, in a way. Um, I think I wouldn't say it's like incremental between albums. I think they're actually quite big jumps, but it's more that, you can really connect the dots quite easily between them. Yeah. Like um, Freak Show has riffs that could have appeared on Frog Stump, but they're just like voiced and played differently. And Neon Ballroom carries over some of the like heavier, almost alternative metal um, uh, inflections of Freak Show. But again, it's just like voiced in different ways. Um, It's really fascinating, I think. And like each release adds uh, two or three new sounds or approaches that are quite dazzling i think yeah definitely D- did you have uh because you, you're uh, richard is a very accomplished uh pianist and <laughs> producer um and you've played in cover bands so did you have like anything musically that stood out to you in diorama or any of the other songs that you sort of went oh that's a really smart thing that he did or anything along those lines i think from the very beginning um Daniel, as a guitarist and as a songwriter, had something of a voice. Um, It's not just that he was influenced by, like, his parents 
you know, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple Records and, um, you know, the Nirvana and like the grunge round him. But mm. even even though they were so young, they did feel like they made it their own, even if they were playing with like a pretty small palette compared to what they would in the future. Yeah. Um, but from Freak Show on, yeah, it gets really interesting. Like you have things like the the second verse of Freak where they're hitting like not a power chord, but um, they're lowering the fifth. So it's hitting like a, a dissonant chord yeah, right. the whole way through in like a really poppy song, for example. And um, yeah, well, yeah. one of the things I am by the time people have, will be hearing this, they'll have heard the Freak Show episode. But mm. yeah, it's like got a really strong melody, but the riff is really heavy and basic. And he's the voice is the only thing carrying a melody. Yeah, it's and it's done in a way that's like quite um kind of minimalist but like really ingenious and simple mm. um and so yeah they went from that to like more baroque forms like you have the david health got classical piano and um emotion sickness which that made a huge impression on me um having a classical background but you know getting more into rock and metal music as a teenager like you know obviously uh but i think when i think of daniel john's songwriting i guess i think of two things and one is like the the really quirky like lyrical phrases that don't entirely make sense to anyone but him yeah <laughs> but he will make it work in a pop context like few others and um the other is like it's not it's not like a disregard for conventional melody and harmony um cuz you know in in most pop songs you have like your major and minor chords in like related keys, right? And that's a very familiar, like reassuring feeling. But a lot of Silverchair songs just kind of go off the rails a little bit um, in ways that are quite fascinating. Um, like Across the Night is um, melodically like really unconventional, very Broadway. But even the later rock songs like Young Modern Station has a modulation like midway through the verse, like it goes yeah. up and down. Um it's like a question mark, you know, it takes, it takes like effort for your head to kind of wrap around it. Yeah. And it does, in order to have some sort of musical continuity, he needs that melody to be super strong and absolutely catchy to even drag the listener along with it. Cause yeah, that's probably the main thing I picked up from this round of listening to um, not just Silverchair, but like all of Daniel's albums is that he, has kind of always been a pop experimentalist, I want to say. Yeah. Um, he, like, they weren't really sold as that in the 90s, but I think looking back in retrospect, that's what they always were. Yeah, and I think probably pop music was a bit of a dirty word back then. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe they would have branched out production-wise even earlier than they did if they were sort of a, a current band or if, or if the media and musical world had been a bit more open to it. Or if they were just older, to be honest. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Because like who else, you know, gets nationally and globally famous from their teen garage band, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, like they literally, their demo was was the number one single on the, on the chart. So they didn't, they had to grow up in public, uh, you know, very quickly. It's pretty and extraordinary. they sort of stood up to it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not just like the revolution, but what they went through. So do you, growing up in Australia, 
so Richard is, however, six years younger than me. No, yeah, six years younger than me. Yeah, uh, not to age myself, but um, <laughs> do you, how did you? Where, where do you see them in the broader Australian music landscape? Hmm, that is an interesting one because um, I've I've spoken to you a little bit about this before, and um, I do agree that Silverchair, um. They, they do very much fit into the lineage of Australian rock music in the 90s, particularly alternative rock, right? You can trace yeah. like you can trace a direct line from, for example, the Easy Beats in the 60s doing the kind of uh, Beatlesque thing to like the Saints doing punk rock first wave in the late 70s through all the new wave of the 80s, even like Crowded House and kind of those really intelligent pop rock bands. Oh yeah. Um, you can kind of trace that through, like maybe not all of it directly to frog stomp, but through what silver chair became. Um, I think it is very much in the tradition of like, yeah, like intelligent, well-crafted Australian pop rock. And so that's, I guess where they kind of land and, um, uh, arguably peak in 2002 in diorama. Right. At the same time, that's happening parallel to like all the kind of Triple J popular bands of the late 90s. Um, yeah, you've listed a few like UMI, but I also feel like the late 90s and early 2000s were this weird time where Triple J alternative and like uh, the mainstream of Australian music were like crossing over in a way that felt kind of uncommon. Like I feel like bands like Regurgitator and um, I don't know, Jebediah yeah. and stuff were popping up like on channel V and video hits, stuff like that. It's kind of this weird moment of like, of like cross pollination. Yeah. Yeah. I think triple J can't be underestimated uh, for the context that maybe overseas listeners don't have. Triple J is our national radio youth broadcaster. Mm. So it, it, it is it has a mandate to listen to what young people want and give them young people's music and it's sort of had this history of every 5 or 10 years people turning on them and saying <laughs> oh, why don't you play what you used to play and it's like well we are trying to be the youth radio station absolutely um and they've been a force for pushing australian music and pushing where music can go, I suppose, in a way that the maybe commercial radio stations don't. Yeah, and they've always had a little bit of an alternative bent to them, but the definition of that has just changed over the years. And that's like very understandable. But um, Silverchair, yeah. Um, I feel like the post-diorama career of Silverchair and Daniel Johns is where I see a lot of like question marks to me, not so much within his like own output, but just where he sits in the broader landscape. It's very, um, it's quite fascinating because um, the way I envision it, I feel like Australian pop music, like mainstream major label pop music really shifted like post, I want to say 2002 or 2003. Cause you had that system where, um, uh, you know, fairly independent bands could score hits um savage garden would not manufactured for example yeah um they you know they worked within the system but they were like their own thing whereas i feel like after the new millennium um the major label 
A&Rs, um, Sony, et cetera, here, like locally, we're very much trying to create stars that they could, um, I guess, control. Like that's not the optimist, <laughs> but you yeah. know what I mean? Like they wanted to develop their own artists. And, and that probably coincides with the Australian Idol and reality Absolutely. show Absolutely. I was thinking about like figures like Vanessa Amorosi who had um, that huge hit, Absolutely Everybody. Yeah. Um, Written by the the host of or the the judge of Australian Idol. Yeah. And um, Delta Goodrum who um, had a kind of parallel career launched through um, appearing on Neighbours and like having a music pushed through that at the same time. Um, So this this is going to make its way back to Silverchair. I don't know. I'm um, happy to take the detour. But yeah, I really feel like that kind of uh, crossover between the like alternative bands appearing in the mainstream faded around that time, um, 2003-ish. Like Australian Idol, um, it did it did create stars, but in a way, it also very much served the major labels um, in that they got to sell a kind of music that was like easier for them to produce and safer and like more middle brow and um probably like more marketable to you know the yeah much easier for them to market yeah um and so that also kind of separated australian pop from what was going on globally like the r&b and more like hip-hop crossover of the time Um, yeah i think we were still kind of catching up to that yeah there was a bit of like teen pop and stuff in the late 90s early 2000s there was a lot of like australian dance music that didn't really survive the millennial transition um yeah right and some of that was fairly underground absolutely that would cross over yeah like even um a figure like paul mack with itchy and scratchy who i'm sure yeah yeah um but also like the state of australian mainstream rock really changed like jet made such a big impact like globally and um here that I feel like the kind of pure retro thing became the cool thing to do. Um, It's really interesting how Jet were perceived because like overseas, they were perceived as like ripping off the the Beatles or the ACDC or whatever, when they probably just thought they were doing the same thing that, you know, the Strokes or mm. what are the Hives or something like that would do. Yeah. yeah, it just felt like a little bit more calculated to me, but it was successful in its own way, I guess. And I wonder I wonder what people overseas thought of the only two Australian bands they'd heard of were Jet and Silverchair. <laughs> I was going to say Wolf Mother as well, who... Um, oh, right, of course. In, wow. in their own way, a kind of frog stomp-esque, I want to say. Like, it's a similar batch of influences but well it's yeah it's all black sabbath worship yeah but very they spun it out in a way that was very retro which frog stomp was not yeah exactly and, that, and that's the thing that yeah the con we've talked about the context that we have in australia of that sort of alternative rock leading up to and including Silverchair. um at the time we had you know Powderfinger, umi mm. and as you said the lineage going back all the way to the easy beats in America, they have they have grunge. Yep. And I was thinking about this today because I had an email from a UK listener, and he said oh, wow. they were not they weren't popular over there. And I wonder if because at the same time that was happening, they had the Britpop explosion where mm. they didn't want people from overseas anyway, and Britpop and grunge were so, you know, 
uh, at odds with each other musically Absolutely. or sonically anyway. There was a bit of a cultural exchange between them, but you're right. They're like parallel movements, um, kind of, yeah, kind of closed off in a way. Yeah, what I was going to say is that, you know, from 2002 to Silverchair re-emerging in 2007, they found themselves in a very, very different landscape. Um, like Triple J style kind of post, like uh, 90s style alternative rock and all those big bands had kind of uh, faded. Like Powderfinger was still scoring hits, but they were the main ones, right? So yeah. Silverchair find themselves without a lot of peers in the present. And a lot of like younger indie rock bands just starting to bubble up who didn't necessarily have a lot of continuity with um, like prior Australian music. They felt like more like US indie, like post the strokes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, even like pop music is very different at that point. It's like beginning to become more electronic Um it's like, you know, two years before the inevitable wave of like Lady Gaga and Rihanna and all that. Um, so yeah, Young Modern felt, it, it's a record that feels like very much out of its time um, in good ways and in bad. But I was very much thinking that um, like Silverchair never finished that mythical sixth record. But like, I feel like if they did, maybe they could have stuck around for the 2010s because you know maybe they could have found a sound that uh parallel to the way like pop rock has evolved in the last decade like maybe they could have found a place to fit in you know like a a fallout boy or like a fun or even like in imagine dragons like these bands who are supposedly rock bands but like aren't really guitar centric and very much about like collaborating with pop songwriters and things like that. Yeah, like the state of uh, mainstream rock is kind of strange right now, but yeah. Yeah, there's not really (laughs) such a thing as mainstream rock. No. So Silverchair were just like ahead of the curve in that. Like they saw it coming, I feel like. and But instead of uh, deciding to continue, I feel like they uh, didn't see a future for them, which fair enough. Yeah, I wonder how much they were looking out for that kind of thing or if they were just – trying to do their own thing and couldn't Mm. make it happen. I know that uh, young modern Daniel John said was the first time he was actually listening to outside music because he'd been so Mm. paranoid about people thinking he'd ripped off a song that he would not listen to any music, you know, at least for Neon Ballroom and I think partly with Diorama. Wow. But when he started writing young modern, he's like, well, you can't not be influenced by things. So I might as well listen to as much as I can and if it sounds like something else, I'll, you know, I'll just fix it kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't was, know that. Hmm. Yeah. He, um, and I'm, there's like interviews at the time where he's saying like, this is the first Silverchair album where I kind of want to take the audience along with me and say, this is for the people that maybe didn't like us before. And not in a, not in a pandering way, but like, yeah, this is a, a sound that maybe you can connect with, which is an interesting, uh, thing to sort of leave off on. Because yeah. the yeah after that they we we didn't see what the next album would have sounded like. No, it's always a, like a big what if in my mind. So like, do you think that they've had any influence on sort of the current crop of Aussie bands or even even international bands or even pop pop music that you know of? It really is hard to quantify Silverchair's influence. I think 
partly because there is quite a big generation gap between them and um, the pop music of now. Even though they're like not that much older, you know, they're still kind of arguably older millennials. Um, but also because no one really sounds like Silverchair. Um, no. Uh, and I mean, Even that, though a lot of Americans think they sound like Pearl Jam. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, in the sense that no one really feel no one really sounds quite like any of their faces. Um, no. But I, I'd written down a few artists who I feel like might have been influenced by them. Um, one kind of mid-career one, weirdly enough, is uh, Tenacious D. I don't know if right. you remember the movie The Peak of Destiny. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's this kind of stoner comedy movie where um, Tenacious D, like Jack Black and Kyle Gass, are seeking um, a mythical pick that gives them the gift of rock is passed down through like Jimmy Page and Hendrix and all that. And I remember them doing interviews at the time where Kyle Gass said, um, they were asked, you know, who currently has the pick of destiny? And Kyle Gass was like, oh, it's Silverchair. Right. <laughs> I actually, I now you mentioned that, I do remember that. And I wonder, I think at the time I thought, are they making a joke mm-hmm. about Silverchair or were they sort of the few Americans who appreciated it. Cause that, that's, yeah, that is an interesting uh, thing that I hadn't remembered. I think at that point, like you would probably have to seek them out to really listen like uh broader. Yeah. Um, but who else? Let me think. Like I see a lot of parallels between silver chair and um, bands like fallout boy, my chemical romance and Paramore. Oh, right. Okay. Who, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Patrick Stump of Fall Out Boy is a Silverchair fan, but um, you know what? Your- the guitarist from Good Charlotte, not that they're kind of yeah. in the same area, he used to wear uh, Silverchair t-shirts in their video clips. I think right. So yeah. he he was definitely any play. Oh, I, I might be wrong, but I think he played a, a PRS guitar as well. Cool, because yeah, you're right. Like all those bands, including Good Charlotte, did start with more like kind of meat and potatoes pop punk roots, but kind of flowed into a more like romanticist Baroque thing after a few years. And they all evolved quite quickly. Um, so that's one. Um, same with um, Fallout Boy and Paramore. Like they very much had to change their sound to fit into modern pop rock um, while trying not to compromise. Whereas My Chemical Romance um, famously called it a day in 2011. Um, even though they had a lot of momentum at the time. So bands like that. Um, do you think they're directly influenced or you just think they are doing the same kind of thing in terms of evolution of sound? I think Fallout Boy may be directly influenced. Um, right. But again, it's it's hard to quantify. Yeah. I, think. I, I do think it's probably more likely going to be Australian artists who don't necessarily sound like them True. but saw what Daniel was able to do through his career yeah. and go, oh, I want to take that creative inspiration rather than it being a musical inspiration. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I'm sure people like Amy Shark yeah. or people along those lines who, you know, don't have a sound like Silverchair maybe saw what he was able, what the band was able to do and uh, in terms of broadening their their sound. Yeah, I, I could be completely wrong about that. I am fairly uh, <laughs> ignorant of <laughs> sort of current music. I think um- – yeah, I think you can hear it um, in artists as diverse as like Gautier to even oh, like yeah. a, a straight up punk rock band like Violent Soho or um, those bands that really mix like 
heavier punk rock with a bit of melody. Mm. I feel like there's a bit of Silverchair in them. Even in like some of the pop stars like Kimbra. Uh, I guess she's Kiwi, but... Yeah, but yeah, same ecosystem, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I was just remembering, right? Um, so Hayley Williams of Paramore recently put out her first solo album, but yeah. she shared um, on Spotify a playlist that was a mixed CD that Paramore's drummer made for her in 2002. So she was probably like... 14 at the time just for yeah. context and um across the night is like the second song on that playlist oh, amazing so, yeah <laughs> so there's something there yeah i think that they uh, even though their biggest hits were obviously frog stomp in the u.s they did still have a bit of an underground following and they they kept touring there um throughout their career so they had mm. they were obviously playing smaller venues by the end but they they had dedicated fans to this day yeah absolutely but i think you're right that the difference like people in Australia receive the receive them differently because I think you've brought this up that mm. we have the context of Daniel's personal story and we are sort of we know that oh he went through this um he went through mental health struggles he went through anorexia and reactive arthritis and we kind of we know the tabloid version of it and so we kind of want to yeah. see what the music sounds like that might reflect that story yeah i feel like we've always been rooting for Silverchair from the very yeah. beginning in Australia. Um, they got torn down quite a bit in the early yes. days, but they, yeah, I suppose it was the biting the hand that feeds a little bit because the same media that was giving them shit mm. helped them out by keeping them in the public eye exactly. and, uh, you know, wanting them to speak to them and and, for, and talk about the music, which is a little, a little bit disconcerting when you think about, True. you know, what they're the, – yeah, the media can sort of give and take within the same action. I've just been thinking about how Frog Stomp is, you know, it's an album from like, you know, Our Boys from Newcastle, right? Um, mm. So, you know, a lot of people love that for what it was. The kind of more dedicated fans wanted to see what was next and, you know, they understood that it was part of the journey. Whereas I was thinking like in the US, Silverchair had surprisingly like better press reviews than I thought they would. Um, I think that was a really good time for rock criticism um, over there. So they- Yeah, well, David Frick, who was like the editor of Rolling Stone mm. at the time, he was like a big booster for them. He saw them at the big day out, like 95. And right. he was like, he went back to the States and was like, these guys are going to be big. And he gave them a big, a great write-up. He reviewed them really well, well, the first album. Yeah, you're right. That's another example where, you know, he came in on the ground floor and as a result, gave them positive review, which led to, um, I would say there's like quite a thin line between like true kind of grassroots support coming up from beneath and hype, which is like top down. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And so if you're in the US and people say, hey, there's this big act from Australia, um, there's not necessarily like a point of reference for that, you know, you, yeah. um, there's not that familiarity with the Australian scene that there is with like Seattle bands or Portland bands and so on. And so, um, it's like either you enjoy the music for what it is, or maybe you perceive, uh, you kind of perceive it as a novelty because, um, you're not seeing them as like 15 year olds, uh, who are going to evolve in the future. You're seeing them as like, followers of you know the recently deceased Kurt Cobain who are like 
tools of you know major label marketing or something like that. It's so much about the perception. Yeah, and and that's what like the 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 nicest things that people would would say back then were that's really good for their age. Yeah, which is I guess that's true. Mm. But then that kind of when they did start to evolve, they kind of turned off and was like, oh, now they're trying to be grown ups. Come on. Yeah, I I feel like the reviews got less positive as their career went on. Yeah, there's a really bizarre. bad review in Rolling Stone in the US for Neon Ballroom yeah. where they're like, oh, this is this is the kids trying to trying to grow up. And it's like, well, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If they exactly. just released a, a heavy rock record, you'd say, well, it's just the same old stuff. I think in the US they were still very much perceiving Silverchair within that kind of post-grunge landscape, but that was yeah. very different to what Silverchair were doing. Like they were experimenting within that pop rock context, like being heavier and lighter. Whereas in the US, like Matchbox 20 and all those similar bands had already kind of gentrified grunge, I want to say. Yeah. It's like pop. That's grunge, a good point. Which is not really what Silver Joe are doing. No. I mean, even as you know, even as late as Diorama, you've got the really heavy songs on there. Um, maybe they weren't released as singles, but if if you're a fan of them, you know that there's heavy songs on that album. Mm. And it's really yeah, it's really interesting how, well, especially in a, in America, you've got the the rock radio format. Yeah. So they had to conform differently. And that's in on Diorama, they'd gone to a new record label and mm. Atlantic. And they were really, they threatened to not release the album because they didn't hear a single and they wanted Daniel to write, a, you know, a hit kind of thing because yeah. it wasn't going to be, you know, the greatest view wasn't going to get played on rock radio, um, supposedly, because it because it has like a weird breakdown section in the middle and horns and all this kind of weird stuff that like that's not going to be taken as rock music that's going to go on the radio, which is radio was, that's the other thing that that's changed so much in 20 years is the radio is kind of irrelevant almost now in breaking an artist or in, or in establishing a, an audience. Yeah, I literally heard in a top A&R on a podcast say we would never bring an artist like first thing to radio. That's always like the last point of um, the last like marketing area these yeah. days. It, although it still can be influential. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like Silverchair um, would have gotten played on Australian pop and rock radio regardless because, you know, they were, you know, they were either media darlings or, you know, people wanted to hear their music. Um, whereas in America, it was still that kind of swimming upstream thing, like always, like throughout their career. It's, I, I guess it's, and and the, maybe the tide is turning now because it's been so long, um, but sort of the baggage that they had back then was mm. the Gen Xs kind of telling them you, you can't play with us kind of thing. Yeah. But people that grew up with them and the, the, the Gen Ys, the sort of older and younger millennials, I just just take it as what it is. Absolutely. And they're now of age to write a new narrative or write about how it was influential. Sort of like I, th- I was thinking about it in terms of how new metal mm. was reviled back then. And, you know, pro- a lot of it was pretty bad. But now it's having a little bit of a critical reappraisal, not just because people who grew up with it uh, can rewrite the history, but also because a lot of bands are being influenced by it exactly. and integrating it into you know, post-hardcore or, or metal bands uh, in a really interesting way. Yeah, absolutely. Like, perfectly said. Um, the Yeah, it's easier to see it for what it is um, 
not so much what people like wanted to be at the time. I think. Um, I just think that like mu- a lot of the music with value does stick around in people's cultural memories, whereas um, a lot of the hits that are kind of forgettable. I mean, even like the mid-range rock radio hits, um, they don't really have like a tail or a presence these days, and that's for like quite organic reasons. Mm. Um, like Silverchair still have a pretty dedicated fan base. Like shout out to the the listeners. <laughs> I'm like very impressed by what they do actually. Yeah. They're keeping it alive. Yeah. Essentially, especially because they don't have a much of a social media presence exactly. or a functioning website or, you know, they're, they are, as, as I said, in the preview episode of this podcast, they kind of stopped just before social media was going to take mm. off and maybe keep things moving for them. Um, when they broke up, social media wasn't able to keep them. Mm. Social media could keep them alive between albums better now. Correct. Yeah, that momentum wouldn't have to be like built up every single yeah. time. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, Daniel Johns has Instagram and apparently he's currently quarantining with this photographer. <laughs> and so every week he posts a photo of him in his home studio and um, and people are like, oh, does this mean a Silverchair reunion? And I'm like, sorry, mate, I don't think so. But um, yeah, so he and he gets massive engagement just from a picture that says, you know, he I think his last post just said, music is happening, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And and everyone it gets hundreds of comments, and so like the people are there ready to receive sort of what he uh, what he puts out. And I just wonder if if it was a Silverchair account. Mm. how much like Powderfinger recently um, did a charity live stream, which yeah. was actually a pre-recorded um, gig inside a, inside the studio, but it, and it was to raise money um, for a charity. And a lot of people were saying, Oh, is Silverchair next? <laughs> which would be nice, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Unfortunately. Um, one thing I was going to say is that, when I was listening to the music back again, it didn't really feel nostalgic to me. Um, like it did summon up a lot of memories, but um, the music was good enough that it felt like a living thing whenever I listened to it. Um, That's a good compliment. Yeah, especially like Diorama, which to me feels quite timeless. Um, but I think I think that's somewhat true of a lot of the fan engagement too. Like um, some of it is very invested in Daniel and who he is and continues to be. Some of it is just oh make frog stomp again but that's you know always been there but i have a theory that like so there are a lot of legacy artists who have people um who are just devoted to like um maintaining their catalogs presence within music and the industry right i think like george harrison has a full-time like legacy person um for example but my theory is that if silverchair had someone like that um, for their catalog, they could easily become kind of a a throwback like '90s teen movie act in a weird way. Like, yeah, um, if like "Miss You Love" has a lot of plays, right? That's one of the most played songs on Spotify, I think. Which oh, is really? A bit, yeah. I should, a bit I should check that actually. Yeah, yeah. but um, and I wonder if because Spotify re- relies so much on playlists, yeah, whether that's shown up in um, particular playlists that are quite popular. Yeah, but I'm I'm convinced that like one big placement of that song in like the next big Netflix teen drama or something could 
give them like another revival. You know? Now that's an interesting thing is, yeah. you know, like I, I suppose this is probably going back 15 years or so, but when sort of Grey's Anatomy, if you were on the Grey's Anatomy mm. soundtrack and you were an indie band, uh, you know, you could have a big, uh, the music, the music coordinator for the, for that show and for shows like the OC could sort of make or break a band yeah. or, you know, re, um, generate new interest in an older band. Yeah. And like enough time has passed that we are able to, well, a new generation is able to hear that kind of stuff with fresh ears. Definitely. Like, even if, um, the band themselves aren't willing or able to, do that i think there is a place for that music in the present day for sure yeah it'll be very interesting to to see how 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 much the music still gets played or still gets bought you know because they, they obviously made money making the albums when albums sold when people yeah. would go and buy physical albums and they sold you know frog stump sold a few million in uh, in america alone mm. I do wonder if well, how long the tail is on all that. Yeah, it's like streaming royalties aren't what they used to be, but they're also like not nothing. So yeah, um, I guess I would feel for Chris in that sense because he never had any songwriting credits, so he would get like the recording um, royalties for the yes. mechanical songs, but not yeah. So like about half of that, which is interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it is interesting this the interpersonal relationship between the three of them because it mm. seemed like Chris was ha- very happy to uh, not contribute. Maybe in the maybe in the early days, he tried to write songs and then he kind of realized they weren't very good. And it's you know, it's, I suppose it's the George Harrison thing in the Beatles. They only yeah. let him put one or two songs on an album because he was up against Lennon and McCartney. Yeah. Not that Chris was going to turn into a George Harrison, mm. but it's sort of, you get the sense that even if what he wrote was was decent, he was up against Daniel Johns, who wasn't even letting Ben write songs anymore. Exactly. Um, sort of by the middle of the career. Yeah, they had a very clear creative process. I, I, I just would have loved to be a fly on the wall the day that, and apparently there was an actual day when Daniel said, mm. from now on, this is how we're going to write songs. I am doing everything and I'll show you the song and then we'll play it. And, yeah. and he, you know, he's like, this is how, this is my process now. We can't just jam around and come yeah. up with riffs how we used to. That's got to hurt just artistically to mm. be told that, but also, you know, they knew which side their bread was buttered on in terms of who Definitely. the, who the songwriting who the, where the songwriting talent was coming from, and I never, I never got the sense that the other guys didn't love the music they were playing. Like no, and and in fact, I, I recently rewatched the the Young Modern uh, making of documentary, and they're like stoked at what the music sounds like. Mm. They're like, this is you know, this is my favorite album that we've done. We're playing right, we're right in the pocket. We sound yeah. like a real band again. Yeah. So I also wanted to maybe talk about. Uh, the media at the time and the media now, how they might have been covered differently, which is it's hard to speculate, but do you think they would have been a bit more responsible around, you know, the paparazzi for one, just taking photos of them when they were going to school mm. and, uh, you know, driving them into seclusion or paranoia and also sort of the way they would cover the mental illness side of it I don't know. I feel like the media uh, in Australia was a, a bit irresponsible in some of their their dealings with the band. 
Yeah, I have to agree because um, they they were covering them, but not in a way that really gave them agency, either like as people or as public figures or as musicians, right? Like the right. music press here was, I would say very positive, but like very removed from like celebrity and even like whatever the nightly news would have been. So that's one thing. Um, even in like in like top level mainstream pop stars like Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, who've struggled with mental illness, like the press has been a bit kinder, I think these days. There yeah. is more awareness. Um, like Britney Spears probably being the the clearest example. Right, of course. Um, she was like the one who really had to suffer through it for I think for people to gain like a, a deeper and like a more sensitive understanding of that. I want to say like Amy Winehouse as well, sadly. Um, yeah. The, like the British press is probably still like the most intrusive and the most tabloidy in the world. Um, I was actually thinking about that, how uh, they weren't that popular in the UK. And yeah. maybe that was a good thing because if they were popular, they, I mean, Daniel was getting paparazzi f- photographers, even though he was just the husband of Natalie mm. Brulia when they lived there. Yeah. And so, you know, he, if, if he was as big as her in those days, yeah, it would have been a hell. And she was quite a well-liked figure, I believe. So imagine if oh, yeah. the tide was against them. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel like now as well, bands would be more media savvy. So they you know, in the nineties, it was kind of, you didn't want the, the bands didn't want to be media trained or coached uh, into how to deal with the press. So they kind of were a bit uh, open to, to anything that, that they got thrown. Yeah. So they didn't want to play that game and it kind of backfired. Yeah. So that I think nowadays a band would be a bit more savvy and shape their own narrative a bit because the the media back then was way more gatekeepery and yeah. top down kind of thing. And um yeah, it's everything from like how record labels are constructed back then to now, but also like social media just gives you more agency so you can exist on your own terms. Um like uh Lana Del Rey recently made some statements that were you know, they, they had some validity about how people perceive her, but she kind of misstepped when it came to, I want to say, like the kind of feminist issues around her own music and others. And so that was um, that was not a coached statement. Like she lives or dies by her own sword in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's the other, that's the other side of it. Whereas you were a little bit protected when you were, um, when you didn't have to, Mm. having a you didn't have to be out there all the time you could you could you know disappear for two years yeah. while you're writing an album or and people weren't really wondering what was going on with you but if you're yeah. away from instagram for a whole year people would just go where, where are you yeah or forget about you completely yeah or, or worse yeah <laughs> yeah i was listening to the diorama singles like including the b-sides right and um one of them has two performances from Rove Live in 2002. But yeah. also it has the full like audio recording of Rove's interview with Daniel. Um, not the whole band, mind you. But No, no. Yeah, it's like- I was actually just watching that this morning. Oh, nice. But yeah, it's like nine minutes, I think, between songs. And I feel like Rove, for those who don't know, he's like, he was an Australian late night host. Um, I want to say pretty well liked. This was like a big TV show. Um yeah. And he was friendly, but still like very much playing the comedian. So he's asking Daniel questions that I guess are interesting, but he makes a lot of like quippy 
comments. I feel like Rove was, that was almost like as good as a TV interview could be for that time. Um, like Rove's asking him 2002 questions and Daniel's giving like 2020 answers almost. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> um, knowing Daniel, like I feel like he's in the spotlight. He's always been either um, either quite honest or, you know, will shy away from the question and deflect. Yeah. There's like no middle ground with him. Whereas watching um, the Andrew Denton interview from two years ago, like he really opened up um, because Denton was like such a sympathetic figure. So yeah, and then the the and I think it was also because you know he doesn't do that many of those kind of interviews, mm. um, and he had had a good experience when he did a uh, he did an Andrew Dent- Denton interview in 2004 when he was promoting the Dissociatives. Mm. I think Denton got a lot of got a lot out of him in terms yeah. of understanding, well, being sympathetic and also pushing him on in- on interesting questions. So like Daniel yeah. would give an answer and, and Andrew would say, well, what is the thing that you just said? And mm. he'd be like, oh, I didn't thought about it that deeply, but it's this. Yeah. Like not only that, but um, these days, if you're an artist, you're a lot more likely to get interviewed by someone who is a fan of your music and someone right. who like openly identifies as that and you you know maybe your age or younger even um you know it's still journalistic but it's not coming from that kind of semi antagonistic like remove that a lot of um a lot of like 90s and prior rock journalism felt like it's not like the hunter s thompson style of journalism you know no it's more empathetic and it's also there would there would be a generational gap i i was also watching this morning the um when Daniel appeared on the panel, which was a, which was, I guess, a panel show in, in Australia um, that I guess to look at it now, doesn't seem groundbreaking or anything, but it's just, you know, people talking at a panel. Then the setup is it was actually a bunch of comedians usually around the panel, but they had sort of um, become, you know, sort of respected media figures as well. And it's a really interesting interview because it's people that are, you know, 20, plus years older than than Daniel was and asking kind of kind of basic questions, but he's giving really interesting answers. Hmm. So yeah, last night I was listening to a few things. Um the Dissociatives album again, and I listened to Daniel's 2015 solo album Talk for the first time, as well as um Dreams No One Defeats Us, which is his 2018 collaboration with Luke Steele of Empire of the Sun and Sleepy Jackson. Rock music in t- the 2010s I think of a band like Maroon 5, for example, who right. within transitioning from, uh, you know, post kind of alternative pop rock in the early 2000s to a more kind of soul R&B thing, it's like they lost their rhythm section, right? That's happened to, I would say, like every popular rock band. Um, there's more production, more like drum machines, more synth bass, that kind of stuff. And, you know, that can work. Like I'm not against it. Like I make pretty synthy music myself it is interesting when it happens to a, a band that no longer sounds like exactly a band and it sounds like maybe you can't tell between the band's new single and a new single that happens to have the lead singer on it from another artist exactly um and you know often those bands do sound quite a lot more organic live like maroon five is maroon eight live or something right so, um <laughs> but yeah with daniel's um solo album i feel like that's the milieu he emerged into because 
I know he wrote a lot of music on his own after Silverchair broke up. Um, he's like Prince in that way, you know. I'm sure there's like mountains of yeah. Daniel stuff that will never get released. Um, but it's so curious that he decided to emerge with what's basically a pure like alt R&B record. Mm. Um, it's it's a weird record because in like some of the narrative surrounding it in 2015 was that it was going to be his big like experimental electronic record and it's really not that at all i feel like it there there are some really good moments like of the 16 tracks maybe like a third of them are like really interesting to good but there's a lot of quite flat like imitative stuff out there um it feels like he's trying on the clothes of like flume or justin timberlake or even Maroon right. 5 in parts um it's just not very like vivid music for what it's like being marketed as and aspiring to. So that's quite strange. Like um, I think with a lot of artists who have, I want to say like grown out of um, like meat and potatoes rock, right? Um, it's like when you're in a rock band, you can be very limited by the amount of instruments you can play at any one time, right? Like yeah. bands traditionally write guitar based drum songs because they can perform it in the garage. And, you know, a band like yeah. the Beatles is a perfect example. You know, they started using the studio as an instrument and, you know, in a way that arguably led to their breakup because they didn't want to perform live and so on. Silverchair is similar, right? And so the whole thing of like losing that band setting can be liberating like with the dissociatives you can maybe end up with like a deeper palette or you can end up with something like talk which ironically feels just yeah quite limited i'm really interested to hear, to hear you say that in because uh, i yeah i was i haven't given that a a, a full crack myself mm. um and i think there are some quite good songs on it yeah. but having an album that is 16 songs long yeah that's a big ask for anyone and it almost feels like he was putting everything together and sort of going, well, you tell me what you think or don't yes. tell me what you think. This is what I'm putting out rather than the here's 10 or 12 really honed songs that, uh, you know, that I'm proud of as one piece of work. Yeah, it feels like, yeah, six, you know, 16 or so, like quite mid-tempo, future-based synth R&B songs out of like 100. Apart from three or four that like really stand out and are quite different. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't, that, that kind of silver chair, Daniel Johns, um, really like adventurous chord progression and harmony. That sense is not there at all, which I find very wow. strange. So, um, yeah, to me, he feels like a small fish in a big pond on that album, which is, I guess, odd considering, you know, who he's been and what he's, stood for but it's it's like him having fun in that context you know i was wondering if you've heard the dreams album actually no actually i i still i i've never i think we've talked about this i've never mm. been a huge luke Steele fan um so I, I i that put me off to begin with yeah and i mean look i'm very open-minded but mm. daniel john's got a neck tattoo that said <laughs> dreams yeah. and it really it really makes me just wonder but yeah, I'm, I'm, I will be listening to it for the podcast at least. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, what, did, what did you think of it? Yeah, in both cases, I definitely am open to liking those albums, right? Um, they're not removed from stuff I listen to. 
Um, Dreams feels like a stadium kind of synth rock album. It's like aimed at that kind of size and that kind of anthemic nature, but it's it almost feels like a vanity project. Like a lot of the press yeah. around it is, I think, very accurate. Um, it's not very, yeah, it's really not very original. Um, very like post Giorgio Moroder, post Prince synth funk, which can be good, but has to be done like really, really well for it to translate these days, I think 30 years after the fact. I was going to say like the fact that, yeah, you said that it sounds like, yeah, you know, they're just dabbling yeah, and is kind of borne out by the fact that they, they did a, they did a gig at, they did Coachella. Yeah. Like they played at Coachella, but then they didn't really tour the album. Yeah. Um, they debuted and- at Coachella. Yeah, and then I don't think if it got a local tour, it, it didn't go wide. I don't really. Yeah, I, th- I think this, that sense that it's a bit of a, a bit of a dilettante kind of yes. thing. Even though you know they they really believe in the album and mm. and you know he's got the neck tattoo to prove it. Yeah, they didn't give it the media push, and maybe that is just a uh, maybe that's a function of both of them being well off enough that they don't mm. have to they don't have to tour and they don't have to put as much of themselves into um, the promotion of, of the music anymore. Exactly. I've been thinking about his career, like in an overall sense. And um, I, I do think of him as someone similar to someone like Brian Wilson, who just has this kind of music within him that wants to come out. And there is a genius there. Um, uh, and off, you know, that also comes with a lot of uh, struggles and mental illness and um, yeah, just like it's all intertwined together. Like it's just one person and his output, right? And some of it feels, um, I was going to say that the idea of genius is often considered to be very like internal, like it comes from within. But looking at Daniel's career, like zoomed out, actually a lot of, his best work and a lot of what he was doing at the time is um, very like externally influenced. It's like to do with his muse and whether he's feeling it or not. It's to do with like the prevailing winds of popular music and what's happening at the time. Do you mean the way he's perceived or the way that he wrote the, the music? Also the way he wrote, I think. Um, not not 100%. Like sometimes he would go against the grain. Yeah, like, and I suppose everyone's going to be a product of their influences, definitely. whether they're currently listening to something or not. Definitely, but I feel like the last decade has really like cemented that for me, um, because yeah, talk and the dreams album feel uh, very much like a product of what's floating around at the time, not as much an internal thing, and that's I think why they don't why they struggle to really connect because that sense of like Daniel John's the the sonic genius isn't really there and nor is like the the narrative of who he is as a person like it it pops up in the press and in the interviews but for whatever reason it just doesn't quite translate in the music so interesting to think about Um, in that um andrew denson interview he did while promoting the dreams album andrew denson says you know like like have you got a musical gift or mm -hmm. do you feel like you've got you've got this musical gift and he goes well no, it's a lot of hard work. Definitely. Like it's work. And I think that, yeah, people throw around those terms like genius or gift. Mm. And I think that probably grates against him in a way. Definitely. Because he's like, well, you know, I've just worked really hard 
my almost my entire life um and you know i want to this is what i want to do at the moment but i also and actually i saw an interview that he did while he was promoting talk i think it was for pedestrian yeah and i mean they and obviously they're asking about silver chair and and you know are you going to get back together kind of thing and he's like well this is the music i want to do right now and this is not going to work in a silver chair context mm. if i'd release this as he didn't say it but he's essentially saying if i release talk as a silver chair album people would you know be livid mm. so it's like you you want the option to go and do a, a whole lot of different things uh, you know because he knows things aren't necessarily for silver chair and if that's what his brain and his musical output is then that's what he has to do. And I think that's because mm-hmm. he, uh, he's a very instinctive songwriter. He doesn't sit down and go, well, today I'm going to write a rock song. He goes, well, this is what I feel like. Exactly. And it's like when you emerge from those sessions with a body of work and you look at it, um, you don't want it to become a victim of hype, you know? Mm. Um, and, you know, there were expectations around a Daniel John's soul album, but it was kind of a curveball in more ways than one, like both stylistically and both, and also like how, I want to say like the, the quality of it, you know, that's subjective, but um, yeah, I've... Yeah, I mean, imagine yeah. <laughs> yeah, imagine the response if he'd released Frog Stomp 2 as his solo uh, album. <laughs> and um, Frog Stomp got that reissue the same year, right? Yeah, I was surprised that even existed. And I imagine it was very much a label thing. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure actually. I, I'm, I, I'm less of a um, merchandise or <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, uh, Collector. I, I'm probably woefully ill-informed about the the kind of diff- reissues and and things. I, I can't really imagine Daniel sitting around at home being like, "Oh, I'm going to wait for the new masters of Frog Stomps to come in to approve them." No, you know? definitely not. And. and <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I, I think that was probably a, a Sony or whoever owns it now. It was Sony because Murmur was an imprint of Sony. True. I want to say the thing I've enjoyed the most of Daniel's recent output was um, at Vivid Live the at the Sydney Opera House in 2015. He did a set and, um, you know, it's been filmed from the crowd. I haven't seen a lot of it, but um, he sang after all these years there, um, a cappella, but with someone else playing vocoder with um, right. these really like beautiful um, textures that sounded like kind of modern classical chords, just these really fascinating voicings. And that to me um, brought that, it really connected like his past with his future in a way that I think not, that I wish uh, more of his music has done. Silverchair like always had that connecting thread, even like young modern does feel like it's informed by the dissociatives. But um, to me, the last decade of his solo music has mostly been lacking that. So that's, I think that's what I'm really hoping for. Not a Silverchair reunion, but some kind of uh, continuity, you know? It's like you look at a figure like Madonna or David Bowie and they are always progressing forward, but what they're doing feels like it's informed by the last work and it feels like it's part of, you know, like a patchwork, like a quilt or something that people will look back on and go, oh, that was their life's work. Um, yeah. And that might just be a function of the compressed time period yes. that you're talking about because, 
you know, it was almost, it was eight years later after Silverchair that he released his first solo album. And yeah. he hadn't, I mean, he did a few little things. He, he, he composed the song for Qantas. Yep. You know, you look back at your own teenage years and you go, well, that's a different person. And it's, it might be hard to recapture the music from that era if, even if you tried. Yeah. I'm sure like in Daniel's own mind, um, I guess this is true of any artist, right? It's very easy to connect the dots in your own head between your evolution, like what you've been doing in the past and the future. But maybe yeah, right. that's that's where this connect for us comes from because we didn't see those eight years. Um, yeah. We just kind of had to take the leap and trust in it and like it or not and project our own meanings onto it. Yeah, like apparently there's the there's the story of he lost a, an iPhone that had 200 you know, song ideas on it. Oof. And, uh, and that was either, I think it was before talk. Now it might've been of the same genre or, you know, similar thing, but it, it would have, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about those lost recordings or those lost song ideas, um, that maybe were more of a through line from, from earlier work. Yeah. And the idea of that being so ephemeral, you know, whereas people are still obsessed with like his nineties records. Um, yeah. And that's going to be disappointing as someone that's trying to be a current artist. Yeah. You know, he tells that story where he, he was just sitting outside one day and, and someone walked up to him and said, Daniel frog stomp, what happened? And he goes, <laughs> oh, God. and he's like, mate, a lot happened. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> where have you been? Did you just emerge from a coma or something? Maybe there, there's some conscious getting away from even that fan base mm. and trying to build a new one. But, you know, there are people that are always going to be interested, like, you know, yourself and myself included. Absolutely. Um, I will offer one last thought, I guess. Uh, Diorama, right? When yeah. I first heard it and also within the context of 2002, it felt like such culmination of everything to date. And... um I think there are a lot of albums that do feel that way. It's like the end of something. It's like the end point of your evolution. Um, for example, uh, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life um, uh, followed like a hot streak of what, five albums. Um, it's his double album. He was winning Grammys every year. Um, it's like he put everything of himself into that and it really showed and it was so good that he could never follow it up again with anything as big because it would just right. be seen as a sequel. So like he swerved and he did soundtracks for films about plants and then he did a, a pure pop record. But um, it's like he has that legacy. He can do whatever he wants now, but that's fine. You know, we've made our peace with it. And I feel like Diorama is kind of, the same way it's almost like an end of history record you know like australian rock music could have ended at that point and the story would have been written it's like that's yeah the and, peak. and it is a culmination of that silver chair sound yeah because after that young modern is quite different yeah um you can still tell that it's the same band i think mm. um but it is a very different approach to the music yeah, and it's like it's all well and good for the music to have peaked or whatever then, but f for the person, you know, you still have to live your life, you know. Yeah. It's been almost 20 years since Diorama. Um yeah. It's like well, Ben Gillies has done some solo stuff, he's still around. His wife is a 
a psychic and a real housewife. Um, Chris Joano owns a restaurant and a hotel, I think, in Newcastle. Yeah. So just has me thinking a lot about like the weird kind of futures and the parallels and what could have been. But it's like in this future we are living in, um, this is what it's like. And it is interesting that Ben Gillies, uh, his solo stuff um, and the fact that he was in the band Tambourine with mm. Wes Carr, who won Australian Idol yeah. one year, um, did go that real pop rocky kind of route. So like he was the guy that everyone thought was the rock dog and he always wanted everything to be heavy. But yeah. he, in his side projects, was just as pop oriented as Daniel was, which I think is interesting when you think about uh, you know where that band might have yeah. gone if he had he had continued writing. Yeah, it's like he and Daniel were great foils for each other until they weren't for whatever reason, and you know that's beyond anyone's control, I guess. Um, yeah, and I suppose we'll we'll never really know if there were interpersonal struggles that drove the the breaking up of the band, or if it was just you know we've been together this long, um, we're just over it. Hmm. I guess that's what leads to this podcast existing. Because that's it. I'm, I'm as if anything, if nothing else, I am an archivist, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we need someone to catalog it and, you know. Um, yeah, and, and hopefully do it before uh, Sony or Atlantic <laughs> finds out. Hopefully and, they uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'm within my rights under copyright law, but, you know, you never know. Mm-hmm. This is this is another reason why, not that not that I think people should listen to podcasts on YouTube, right. but one of the major reasons that I haven't been putting the episodes up on YouTube is because it, you know, Content ID finds yeah. the songs and can monetize it for the, um, for the record company or just strike it and say, you're not allowed to use this song. And then, well, then you don't have an episode. Yeah, it's a total coin flip, isn't it? Well, I guess we should probably wrap it up there, though we could obviously talk for hours about this stuff. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been great. Excited to hear the future episodes too. Oh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Get your plugs out of the way. What would you like to plug? Cool. So I, yeah, I produce in a pop duo called L. That's E-L-L-E. So we're putting out a double single, called Cherry Love Dreams and Siren on Friday, June 5. So um, they may be out by the time you hear this. Yeah, they'll definitely uh, they'll definitely be out already. So go check that out. Cool. Yeah, you can find it wherever music is. We're on Facebook at L Songs. I am on Twitter at RSH underscore E-L-L-E. I think I had to verify that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, Richard is a, is a fantastic music journalist as well. So uh, if, if is there a particular piece you want to uh, alert people to? The Lady Gaga piece maybe? Yeah. Um, on Vulture, just look up every Lady Gaga song ranked and that should be updated soon. I'm trying to think if there's anything relating to like Silverchair that I've written. I don't think so. A lot of my like, Oz Rock stuff has been erased because Faster Louder no longer exists. So oh, right. Yeah, that's a pity. I, I have transcripts, but I need to get around to archiving that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again very much. Uh, and we'll um, I'll hopefully be able to do some more guest episodes and maybe even have you back. Ooh, thank you. Very exciting. All right. Thanks, mate. Bye. Changing this
So that was my conversation with Richard S. He. I really hope you enjoyed it. Richard is a really smart observer of pop culture and he brings a totally different take to things than I would. I've put his details in the show notes if you want to check out his writing or his band L. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and follow me on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash silverchairpodcast. You can also email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. That's it from me this episode. Next episode, we're back on format to cover Silverchair's third and some say best album, Neon Ballroom. 